Genesis 37. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, a boy, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the sayings in mind. And so on, through the entire chapter, we have the account of Joseph and his early years of being a boy, an innocent boy, being hated by his brothers, eventually coming to the place where they hate him so much they want to kill him. And that plan being frustrated, he finally gets sold off as a slave and goes down to Egypt. Such a great, important story to the history of God's chosen race, Israel. And so it was that here they have this boy among them who is destined for greatness, but they can see it not, nor can they believe it not. And something about greatness being among all of us, we don't tend to see it. I'll give you an illustration. Several years ago... <clears throat> A man opened up his violin case at a metro station in Washington, D.C. And he pulled it out during the morning rush hour and began to play several intricate Bach pieces. Thousands of people going to their offices walked on by. Of the thousands who walked by, six actually stopped and stood to listen to this musician. A full number of 37 people actually dropped some money into his violin case for a total of $32 after 45 minutes of playing. It was all taken on film and it was actually made into a documentary because the individual who was playing the violin was none other than Joshua Bell, one of the great violinists of our age. And several days earlier, Joshua Bell had played to a sold-out symphony hall in Boston, Massachusetts, where the average ticket price was $100, and he had played the exact same pieces, earning for himself tens of thousands of dollars. Greatness was among all the people, but they did not know it, and they simply walked on by. I guess we can understand that. After all, people had an agenda, and they had to get to work. What do you do in a situation like this where you actually have greatness living among you, one of your brothers? And it reminds us of the fact that the greatest one who ever, ever came to earth lived among his brothers. They recognized not his greatness until after he rose from the dead. It's hard to understand these kind of things. There almost seems to be a demonic element to which people are blinded to such biblical greatness. And this certainly helps us understand the, the flow of this passage and some of the things that we have to, to learn from it. For after all, by the time you finish this chapter, you come across a boy whose brothers 
want to, of all things, kill him so that he could never be great. And so the chapter is the innocent being betrayed by the guilty. And as Moses carries us along in a lengthy chapter, he takes us through several stages. And really the first stage that we just read was, why would you betray your brother? And he gives a couple reasons why. The first one, painfully enough, especially for us dads, is the dad. Dad is a partisan dad. Dad is a preferential dad. He likes one of his sons above the others. And the problems from that are severe. Take your eyes back to verse 2. Begins with the words, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. And instantly focuses on his 11th son, Joseph. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. This verse really emphasizes how young and immature and naive Joseph is. Number one, he's 17 years old. This is in a day and age when men lived until 170. So he's still very, very young. Furthermore, in the verse, he is called here a youth. Your version might even have the word boy. That's someone who's quite young and inexperienced. And then thirdly, you find out a little bit about him. It says at the end of verse 2, Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their dad. Did you guys ever have a brother who was a snitch? We taught our children never to tattletale. Of course, they all did. But that was not something that was okay in our household. You were not supposed to be a tattletale because we didn't want the trust relationship between the sibs to break down. Now, they would do it, and if it was actually something we would... Then we had to tell them, if it's an emergency, come and tell us. So you're trusting like an 11-year-old to figure out what's an emergency and what's not? Well, you know, that's kind of difficult. But we hopefully at least passed on that you weren't supposed to be a tattletale. Even if the child had done something wrong, work it out between you. Handle it yourselves. But what do you see here at the end of verse 2? The kid is, is the lowest kind of snitch that you get there. And, and he, here he is. He's actually tattling specifically on the sons of Jacob who have the lowest social standing. The sons of the maids. Bilhah and Zilpah. Now, just a little background. Jacob had four wives. Not the wise thing to do. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be one. But in that day and age, and in that culture, and God allowed, although it was not his counsel, he allowed for this to occur, as he does often things in men's sinful culture, but it has great and disastrous repercussions, and one of those is brothers who don't trust each other, brothers of a different mother. And So here he is, reporting on the the sons of the maids who are already of the lower social distinction among them. In other words, Joseph doesn't even get it. He's a kid. He doesn't think about social distinctions. He's just a kid. He doesn't even think about what's, what are they going to think of me when I go snitch and tell dad on what they're doing when they're shepherding and they're not being everything that dad wants them to be. It gets worse. The response of dad to his snitching son. Look at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. He should have probably got the paddle. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. The tunic was either lots of colors, which is kind of the popular interpretation. This word is also used in 2 Samuel of a tunic that reaches the palms and the soles of the feet. The idea being, you wouldn't ever work in it. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's multicolored. And it's also long-sleeved and long legs, which in a hot climate like they lived in was 
Not something you would work in. But he made it for him and not for the other sons. So, so this kid, the snitch, gets rewarded. And I tell you again, he just snitches in innocence. He's not, he's not a calculating kid. He wasn't trying to get them in trouble. He's just a, he's just a boy, like Moses makes it clear in this verse. And the result, of course, of dad's favoritism is hatred. Look at verse 4. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. The Hebrew here suggests that the way the brothers saw Joseph and dad was dad had this perfect love, a full love, almost like an agape love for Joseph, while for, for them, we're just, we're just dog food. We're just, we're just worthless to dad. And so given the fact that their brother's a snitch, given the fact that the, brother, that the father loves him more, they literally hated him and they couldn't speak to him on friendly terms. And I'm telling you, Joseph is so young and naive, he doesn't even get it. He's just that innocent. He doesn't even get it that he's... I'm sure he, he gets it at some level, but not at the right level. He probably thinks it's his fault in some way. And How can he figure it out and make it all better? He's just a boy. One of the sub-themes of the book of Genesis is that a father lives through his sons. And sons live to honor their fathers. And these things continue for as long as either lives. A father lives through his sons, and sons live to honor their father. You can get that twisted around in a number of ways, but it is inbred, it is deep, it is part of the image of God in us men, that the relationships that we have with our dad is indelible and presses us into a variety of behaviors and thinking and beliefs. And it's just as true for a Joseph as it is for the sons of the handmaids. And they couldn't speak to him even on friendly terms, because when they now looked at Joseph, they saw the love that they wanted from their dad and couldn't get. Obviously, you can understand then that to be a father in this world is to work hard in your heart to be sure that you have no preferential treatment for any of your children above any others. There's going to be that, that son. How often do you see this in a family where the oldest son is the complete opposite of the dad. And the dad has to learn to love his son, not based on whether the son mirrors him and has the same interest in him and the same personality as him, but merely because he is my son. You see that frequently. And so a father has to learn that I am going to love my children with agape love, unconditional love. Love, not based on performance, but based on me choosing and as an exercise of will at every moment of every day for the rest of their lives, I will love this child of mine. Not based on performance, but based on relationship. Jacob is like the shameful poster boy of Scripture, the one who mangles this so fiercely along with David the king. So this is the first reason why they don't love their brother, why they hate him, and why the betrayal is going to happen. Because dad prefers Joseph. Second reason is because of his dreams, and that kind of covers the next section. Look at verse 5. So Joseph had a dream... And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. That tells you Joseph didn't have a clue as to how he was coming off to his brothers. The word hate here, one of the books I looked up said this, hate expresses an emotional attitude toward persons and things which are opposed, detested and despised, and with which one wishes to have no contact or relationship. It is therefore the opposite of love. Whereas love draws and unites, hate separates and keeps distance. See, we think of hatred as deeds. But here, 
This is distance. We think of hatred as actions that have been done, words that have been spoken, that have been intended to wound and to harm. But in its most basic form, actually, hatred is staying away from the person who you hate. Only later when it's developed will it become deeds of hatred, but when you hate someone, you wish them to have, you wish to have no interrelationship with them whatsoever. And it's only later that the deeds come. And you'll notice here, if you kind of look at the text, verse 5, he had a dream. He tells it to his brothers. They hate him even more. This you would never dream. This is a kid destined to become a diplomat. He just doesn't understand people. I don't know. Some people seem to be born more with like social, the ability to get social cues. Not this kid. He doesn't seem to think socially. And so he declares his experience. I had a dream. He doesn't even recognize apparently that his brothers hate him. Maybe he blames himself inside for their despising of him and naively thinks that, hey, if I let my brothers in on what's going on inside, they'll like me and I can win their love. If that's the case, then inwardly Joseph is a manipulator. Could be the reason why he's telling them the dreams. He didn't have to tell them the dreams. He just had a dream. It was going to come true as a dream from the Lord, whether he told it or not. But he tells it. He's kind of like his dad, Jacob, in this, who was a manipulator, manipulated his twin brother, Esau, manipulated Laban, his father-in-law. My apologies here to those of you who view Joseph as a type of Christ. It's kind of a yes and no proposition with me. Yes, there are parts of, of Joseph where he's very much like Christ, hated by his brothers. Overall, he's an incredibly righteous man, but then there are other areas where Maybe not so much. Maybe not so much here. Hey, look at verse 6. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. And he goes on. It's almost like he, he, I think a better translation would have been, Listen now to this dream. Authoritatively. If I read my Hebrew correctly there. And it's filled with emotion. Almost like, Listen now, literally, to this dream I have dreamed. Something impressive and important about it. Verse 7, For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf stood up and stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered round and bowed down to mine. Hey, look, back then, farming wasn't like it was today. If you planted 100 seeds, if you got back 200 plants, you were had a, a bumper crop. Today we expect far more. But if you got a sheaf of wheat, that was a huge amount of work of planting, sowing, taking care of the weeds, harvesting. Not only that, when you had a sheaf of work, it was an exhibit of your farming skill. If you could make a sheaf, that then you were a farmer. If you were foolish as a farmer, you didn't get anything. Sheaves are the result of a great amount of labor. They represent sustaining life. They also represent the farmer's wisdom and skill. And the whole thing here of your sheaves bowing down to my sheaves are, are basically saying, I have greater wisdom and skill than you do. The inferior bows down to the superior. The superior is me, Joseph is saying in his dream. Hey, look, this is exactly how his brothers take it. Look at verse 8. Then his brothers said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? See, they understand. They get the picture. It goes way beyond farming. Are you really going to rule over us? And so they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Wow. Now, I have two sons, not 12. But if in the house, my youngest of the two were to tell his older brother that you, I had a dream, and when we get older, you are going to bow down to me, it wouldn't go so well in the house. 
And we would have one of those epic wrestling battles where legs and arms go in all sorts of directions and they roll over the furniture in the family room, which Dina pretends to ignore, and where they're wrestling and tussling and holding on to each other and squeezing pressure points and doing all the other things that sons do. They still do it. It would not go well for the younger to tell the older that you're going to serve me. It would not go well at all. And this is what he's telling these kids. Of course, at the end of verse 8, they hated him even more, but they had no opportunity to carry out their hatred. So watch what happens. Verse 9. Now he had still another dream. And you're cringing by now. You're going like, no. And he related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the heaven stars were bowing down to me. The phrase here for bowing down is the most intensive Hebrew verb form that there is. And it's obeisance. It's falling down flat on your face in front of someone in the position of an abject supplicant. That's exactly how it's understood. You'll see that at the end of verse 10. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? This is not just a normal, hey, I'm, I'm going to be the richest kid of all the kids when I grew up. This is, this is like in your face. And I'm telling you, I don't believe Joseph really has a clue as to what he's actually saying, how it's going to be received. He's innocent. He's, he's naive. He's a boy. There's a time to be a boy. It's important to be a boy. Nothing wrong with being a boy. And older brothers ought to be able to say, you know what? Let him be a boy. He's a boy. He'll get older. Why would you get so angry with a 17-year-old? Come on, he's 17. You know, 17-year-olds, they can hardly brush their teeth and comb their hair. And here they are having a hard time with a kid. And look at verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. This is not a superficial emotion, beloved it's a strong emotion where you yearn for something that another person has. And in this case, I believe they yearn for their father's love. And they couldn't get it. And Joseph got it. Jealousy is what Rachel had for Leah. Leah kept on popping out babies left and right. And Rachel couldn't get any. And she felt jealousy. Such an intense emotion. Isn't it interesting that women are often tagged more with jealousy than guys are? Boy, that would be a really dumb thing to get into, wouldn't it? But, wow. <laughs> Doesn't it just seem like that's the way... Maybe I've been reading too much Jane Austen, but... Anyways, Dad interprets the dream, and he gets it right, and he keeps the saying in mind because he's thinking... Joseph is a special kid. So what do we see? We're starting to see the innocent betrayed by the guilty. Why would you ever betray your brother? Number one, because dad loves him more. That hurts a hurt that goes to the core of who a son is made to be in relation to his dad. And then you get his offensive dreams, which are totally in your face, and they don't stop. They come one after another. And finally, it just breeds the intensity of hatred, verse 11, jealousy. Now, the next section of the account is all a setup. Joseph, we know, is innocent, but now you're going to see him as an innocent victim, but now not of his family, but by the invisible hand of God's providence, God's supernatural guiding of all affairs that to us we cannot see and know. 
We cannot predict, we cannot look ahead, we can only read the past, but whatever is going to happen in the future has already been planned by God in every detail, all to its infinite specificity. And now we're going to see that the invisible hand of providence is about to lead Joseph into betrayal. He has no way to see it, and he certainly doesn't deserve it, but here it comes. Verse 12, read with me there. Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, in other words, he was the only one who didn't go. Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said to him, I will go. Then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock and bring back word to me. Be a snitch. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came up to the valley of Shechem. Pretty good hike, by the way. Pretty good hike. He wouldn't have made that in a day. It would have taken a couple of days. And you see here the two employments. All the other brothers are shepherds. His father sets up the youngest kid. There's a Benjamin coming along at some point. But sets up Joseph, the 17-year-old, as an overseer over the other sons. Well, that's not good. You don't do that with your youngest son. You don't set them up as an overseer over your other brothers. And then to come and come back and give me a report on how they're doing, like Joseph's assessment of his older brothers would have any accuracy at all, any validity, he's still a boy, tells you something about where Jacob is at. He doesn't trust his other sons. He trusts Joseph, who he shouldn't. Look at verse 15. A man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. Please Think about a boy wandering in a field, going back and forth, and just staying there. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said to him, they have moved from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. What is the point of this account? Very easily, Moses could have skipped this, and the story would have gone along fine. Joseph went, sent by his father from Hebron, and he found his brothers at Dothan. Could have done it just like that. Save some time, save some angst, save some effort. But you know, right, beloved, that every word of God is tested and true, and there's not a wasted drop of ink on the page of your Bible. You know that, right? You know that the reason the words are there is for very good and solid reasons. They are to teach us solid truth for the benefit of our lives. And I believe this passage is here for that reason. See if you don't agree. On the surface, it would just show that Joseph really doesn't think like a shepherd. He's wandering around in a field. In fact, if you have the King James Version, it sets it apart. It says, behold, he was wandering in a field. Like, look at this. The kid's a bonehead. He's wandering around in a field. And not only that, he didn't even go try to find someone to help him with directions. The guy found him, verse 15. He was lost, in other words. He was wandering. He doesn't even know enough to go ask for help. The man had to find him. And on top of that, the man was the one who had to ask him. He should have said, oh, excuse me, over the- hello, hello. But no. The guy had to come up to him and ask him, what are you looking for? And amazingly enough, and this is what I think escapes our notice, the guy actually knows where the brothers are. I I take it almost humorously. Verse 16, I am looking for my brothers. It's like, dude, I don't even know who you are. How do I know who your brothers are? But the guy knows That's crazy. What, do you think that they put out a press release when they moved from Shechem to Dothan? By the way, we're moving now to Dothan and everybody in the town needs to know it. I don't think so. I think when you're grazing, you just let your flock go ahead and then you just follow them, don't you? But the guy knows. It's amazing. What are the chances I ask you of this? Am I right? Zip. Very small. What if the man had not found Joseph? Joseph goes back to Papa, says, I couldn't find them. They weren't in Shechem. 
I tried that. I really did. I looked all over Shechem, and I couldn't find them, and I came back, what's for dinner? <laughs> what if the guy hadn't found them? You know what? He would have never got kidnapped and sent down to Egypt. Oh, the mysterious working of the almighty sovereign God. At the moment, there is no way Joseph could understand that this man raised up to send him into slavery. If this man had not appeared, he would have not found his brothers and would have headed back. And all the events of what would transpire in the future would have not come to pass. So listen, this man is not magical. This man is not mystical. He's not an angel. He's not a pre-incarnate Christ. He is what the text says, a man, a guy. And he unwittingly sets up Joseph for doom. And Joseph couldn't see it. It's the invisible hand of providence. And many of you have had that invisible hand of providence in your life as well. How many times over the years to come do you think Joseph would reflect back upon the man in Dothan and say to God, why? Why did you send that man to Dothan? Why did you set it up so that he knew where my brothers went? Why didn't you just let me go back to Hebron with my dad so this wouldn't happen to me? Now I'm in slavery. Now I'm in prison. All thanks to that man in Dothan. How many times do you think he replayed the conversation over and over again? Struggling, wrestling, Pained by the invisible hand of providence. And you. By invisible circumstances that you could have never known. And if you had tried to interpret them, you would have got it wrong. Raid themselves in your own life to bring you to a place of great trial, agony, pain, bitterness, struggles with hatred and unbelief in God. So did Joseph. So did this man. This naive boy. Beloved, the ways of God in your life are mysterious. Mysterious. You cannot figure him out. He will not let you. The ways of the Lord are inscrutable. Which means you can't screw them. You can't, you can't unscrew it. You can't figure it out. You can't wrap, unwrap it as it's happening. God is doing things and he is making his way in your life so that you cannot understand what he is doing. All of this is put into your life. All of this was put into Joseph's life by the invisible hand of God. All of it to teach him to walk with God. All of it to teach him genuine faith. How about you, beloved, today? Are you struggling with the invisible hand of providence in your life? What he has brought you to? What you are feeling? wonderful man named William Cooper years ago wrote a poem. It was put into music, but let me just read to you several lines of it. He said this, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds, of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. I love this. Behind a frowning providence, there hides 
a smiling face. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. That Joseph would have wished someone to sing that to him when he was a slave and in prison. And it all gets to this matter of if, if we only ever get to the place when we're, we're now going to be thankful to God, we're going we're to love God, we're going to enjoy God, only when he brings me out of the trial, only when the thing that's hard is removed or done, that's when I will rejoice in the Lord God if we're only of that way, we don't learn what he has for us to learn, which is to learn to be deeply grateful, filled with gratitude in the midst of the trial. And I do not tell you that you can turn it on like a light switch. Please do not misunderstand me. I can't stand that kind of teaching. I think it sets people up for an immense fall. We, as sinners... We, as those who only know what happened in the past and have no clue about what's happening in the future, we who are often the, listen to me, victims of the invisible hand of providence must even, through all the struggles of rage, anger, bitterness, fear, misunderstanding, miscalculation, yet learn through the struggle of sanctification to be grateful to God. To be thankful to him. That's so much to go here. Listen, if, if we only give God thanks when the sun shines, then what, how are we any different than the pagans? We're no different. The, the, the Christian man, the Christian woman, is the one who gives thanks to God, whether the providence is wonderful and sweet, that's easy, or as is so common in our lives when it's so directly against us and even long-lasting, like it was about to be for Joseph. So now we understand, okay, he's being betrayed. At the beginning, he's being betrayed because of his dad and because of his dreams. That's invoking their, his brother's hatred. Now we actually see the invisible hand of providence raising up against him and bringing him to a place where it's going to go all bad. Next, third point, Satan's plot is frustrated. Hope you can pay attention to this one. Beginning in verse 18. When they, that's his brothers, saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute here. Whoa. Run the tape back a little bit. They plotted against him to put him to death? I mean, I understand the issue of, okay, the, the kid needs a beat-up. I get it. You know, he needs to be wised up a little bit. But to kill him? Kill your brother? That's, that's overdoing it, isn't it? This is evidence that Satan is involved in this. You know the texts. Jesus says to the Jews, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. A couple chapters later in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. This is evidence of an invisible satanic involvement here that they want to kill their own flesh and blood. So now we get to see the other side of the invisible hand of God's providence. Look at verse 19. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say, A wild bill, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. Here's where it gets frustrated. But Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, Let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay your hands upon him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. First thing Reuben does right in the book of Genesis. Interesting. What if, what if Reuben had not heard it? Evidently, they were talking among themselves. Reuben kind of overhears it. 
he would have been dead. The kid would have been killed, but Joseph overheard it. And he rescued them. He rescued Joseph out of their hands. So here you begin to see the, the invisible hand of God's providence rescuing Joseph. But you also see it working within the, the people's lives. Satan wants to cut off the promises of God that have come to Jacob that are going to be carried out in a mysterious way down through Joseph, the son. So Satan is working with the brothers' hatred, their jealousy, their rage against their dad, against their young brother. Satan is using that. He's manipulating it. He takes advantage of it. They've given him a full opportunity. He's grabbed it. But he gets frustrated by Reuben. And actually, the only thing that rescues Joseph here is not Reuben, but the word of God. Look at this. Look at verse 22. See what Reuben says to them? He says, shed no blood. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, Genesis 9. That's the establishment of human government. That's the verse that says, he who sheds man's blood by man shall have his blood shed. It's the authorization for government to execute murderers. So what's he saying here? He's saying, look, shed no blood. He's repeating to them the command of God that they would have all been raised with from little boys. And the point being, if you kill the kid, somebody can come after you later on and kill you. So probably more out of self-preservation, the reality of what this text meant for them, they accede to Reuben. Besides, if they did go ahead and kill the kid, how did they know Reuben wouldn't snitch at some time later and turn them in and then their life would be over? Now, it's at this point... If you watch the movies, that you'll, you'll see the drama of Joseph screaming, yelling, crying, beating his, his hands and legs against his brothers in an attempt to escape what they're doing. And you get the full emotional effect of the betrayal right there and then. Notice how different now the word of God is from the movies. It's very interesting. There's nothing here. You go on and you read the passage, there's really nothing about Joseph. It's just about the brothers. Now, later on in the story, the first time they meet Joseph when he's the prime minister of Egypt, they fall down before him saying, we need bread, we need, we need grain. <laughs> And Joseph can hear them, but they don't understand it. And Joseph throws them in prison for three days. He lets them out, and, they, and it's Reuben who says to them, Listen, truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They remembered the screams and the cries of their brother as they were throwing him into the pit. But still, pretty bad comparison. They'd only been in prison for three days. Go ahead and compare that to selling your brother into slavery. But here, we're going to read about nothing about Joseph. No screams, no cries. Why? Because what good would it do when the invisible hand of providence has betrayed you? What good will it do when he's a totally innocent kid he hasn't earned this kind of destiny, but this is what he has. He's being betrayed by his brothers for, frankly, nothing that he's done. You can see Satan's hand all over it. Just as Job was crushed by Satan for having done nothing wrong, so too Joseph here is being crushed by Satan, taking advantage of the brothers' hatred. Just like Jesus, who's hated by his brothers, hated by Israel, though all he did was good, all he did was proclaim truth, took old women and, and healed them of bodily affliction, took blind people and made them to see, turned around the lives of prostitutes and angry men, greedy men. All he did was good, and it's inexplicable. How could they hate him so much? It's inexplicable apart from Satan. And the invisible hand of God that rules over all things. 
and does exactly as the Almighty has predestined. So the story of him kind of being betrayed by the, the, this innocent boy being betrayed by the invisible hand of God's providence. Now, we have to go to the next stage, which is how that played itself out against him. So look at the next section and see how sick the brothers are. Where are we at? 23. It came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into a pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. Look at this. Then they sat down to eat a meal. I guess that's the first thing you do after you throw your brother in a pit, right? Wow. They had an appetite. Apparently doing what they did stirred a pretty good appetite. And as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites, oh my, the invisible hand of providence, was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh. In other words, they bought some. On their way to bring them down to Egypt, Judah, fourth son, said to his brothers, what profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. It's like, it's like you're talking about making a purchase at the store. Hey, you know, how much is that magazine over there? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And not lay our hands on him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. Nice rationalization, Judah. And his brothers listened to him. All of them. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph to Egypt. Hey, we can sell the kid. This is better than killing him. Hey, 20 pieces of silver. And he's gone. This is much better than killing the kid. So if you're thinking that these guys are pretty depraved, or maybe you're thinking, I can understand that. That's kind of, kind of, I can understand why they would be so angry because of how I feel and how people in my family have felt. We have to go to the next level, beloved. Are you ready? 29. Now, Reuben returned to the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit, so he tore his garments he returned to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. As for me, where am I to go? So they took Joseph's tunic. They slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent the very colored tunic. They sent it. They didn't go. They sent it by somebody. And brought it to their father and said, We found this. Please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then he examined it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. Now watch the sons in verse 35. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. They arose to comfort their dad. Dad, it's okay. Dad, the days of mourning are over. Dad, God had a plan for Joseph and he lived out his years. He's with the Lord now, Dad. It's okay. While they themselves had either wanted to murder him and being frustrated had sold him into slavery and now they're lying to their own dad. They rose to comfort him in verse 33, but he refused to be comforted. Of course he did. And he said, surely I will go down to the grave, Sheol, in mourning for my son. This pain, this grief that I feel is so deep, I will never lose it. So his father wept for him, and none of the sons came to genuinely relieve him. What depravity. And then lastly, we finally catch back up to Joseph, who being innocent goes from great favor to what would be in all likelihood the end of his life as a slave. Look at verse 36. Let's finish it up. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, Pharaoh's officer, the captain of the bodyguard. 
may I just make the observation for you, please, that the captain of the bodyguard would be the head of the, the prison for the worst prisoners, the worst offenders, the worst criminals. He was not a softy. Soft, pliable, plushy men do not become prison guards and leaders of prison guards. The man was hard as nails. He went from his dad who makes him very colored tunics and who makes him the overseers of his brothers so that he's nice and soft and plushy and roly-poly and he goes to be the slave of a hard taskmaster. Visible hand of God. Aren't you glad that you can read about Joseph and the life of faith that the Lord required of him. I please don't want you to think that at this point, Joseph is singing hallelujahs. Okay? I don't want you to think that Joseph is this guy who, because he's in the Bible, therefore he was just so wonderful, he was flesh and blood like you. Inside, everything raged against the injustice that had been dealt to him. But the greatest injustice at this point that he can't grapple with is what is God doing? And this will test not only his faith, but will prove it that it's genuine and is so important for him to be the man to whom his brothers will one day bow down to, not in order for them to be crushed, but in order for them to live. Oh, the mysterious, wonderful hand of God in your life and mine. How untraceable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. Would you pray with me? And Holy Father, as we think about Joseph and we're stunned and we're also thinking about our own lives and your own providence in our own lives, we want to pause right now and say, thank you. We want to say, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord who gives and who takes away. And we will, by your power and grace, trust you And we will, by your favor and kindness in our hearts, look to you in all the days that the invisible hand of providence might, so to speak, betray us. We know that's really not the case. We know that you are infinitely wise, infinitely compassionate, infinitely good. No bad thing comes from your hand. But if we can be excused for putting it in human terms and for referring to it as the things that we feel, just as your creatures, we bow down before you and call you God. Thank you for Jesus Christ that on the cross was taken all our sin And on the cross was displayed the fullness of your love for us. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Your Son's name we pray. Amen.